Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's Chris Howard from Lace Partners. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Now, listener, what you don't know is that, obviously, we record these podcasts, and sometimes we have to do multiple ones. And that's happening today. I'm not going to tell you which day it is, but I've already done one podcast with Kathy. So she's already not liking the sound of my voice because I've said my intro at least once and I'll have to do it another couple of times before the end of the day. But there you go. Letting you in behind the curtain a little bit. And it is Kathy who is joining me as my co-host today. How are you? I'm good, Chris. Good to be back. Good to be back again. <laughs> Although to the listener, this is just another week, exactly. but not to us. But today's podcast is going to be a really interesting one, actually. Kathy and I have had a conversation with Jim McLeod. I'm going to introduce Jim in a second so that he can tell you about his background and the roles and what he's done. And you'll see quite quickly when Jim starts to talk about his experiences, why we think it's going to be quite an interesting podcast, because he's had quite an interesting career. And we're going to go through all of the soapbox moments, because Kathy often gets her soapbox moments, things like EVP, line manager capability. But occasionally we like to get somebody else on their soapbox. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks very much. I, I must admit, I'm slightly alarmed at the overuse of the word interest in there when you introduced <laughs> Very interesting. You are interesting. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, please, Jim, just kind of your background and the roles that you've got, some of your passions as well. Yeah, certainly. So until recently, I was a serving officer in the Royal Navy. I had a 33-year career with the Navy. I joined as an engineer, a weapon engineer, and then followed a route through engineering, operations, policy, strategy, and ended up in the last sort of third of my career doing transformation and strategic HR with my final job as, in effect, the HR policy lead for around about 150,000 service women and service men across the Army, uh, Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, including talent management, recruitment, retention policies, skills, education policy. So quite a strange career starting off in weapons and ending in HR. And throughout my career, I enjoyed relative success. I left as a rear admiral. And one of the things that I find when I reflect back on it was I approached things differently. And and as I went through my career, I thought about things in a slightly different way to many of my peers. And that served me very well and, and helped me succeed. But I also found it very tiring. And as I became more senior, I started to spend more time in the leadership role, trying to create space for others to be themselves so that they could enjoy a career like I had and bring diverse thought to the table. And as I went through, I learned that the more time I spent building a team, then the happier they were and the better they worked together and the better I looked and the better I did. So it became very symbiotic in creating space for people to be themselves. And that led, as I got more and more senior, to a better understanding of inclusivity and diversity and ended up where in my final job, where I was the same charge of HR policy, I was really keen to improve the inclusivity, equity, and diversity of the people around me and and across defense in particular. And I remembered I had a lady come to work for me as one of my assistants. And I was sat down and I did my usual chat with everybody who joined and talked about what was important to me. And I started talking about sort of diversity and my views on 
creating the space for people to be themselves. And this lady's face lit up and she started to talk about how this was something that was really important to her. And she started telling this story about how she'd just left an aircraft carrier. She'd been a helicopter pilot, a very capable lady. And she started saying how her experience of being a woman in the military and how she was tired of continually being surrounded by male words everything was masculinized man overboard signage on ships and i found myself in my head going oh here we go again this is just language this is 500 years of history and then i suddenly caught myself and i had one of those moments and i thought oh my god jim if i'd have been surrounded for my entire career by words and by documents that didn't admit I existed, then how would I feel? And I suddenly found my whole viewpoint changed. And I sat down with this lady and and started to ask her about her experience. And and together we decided there and then we were going to do things to try to improve the gender diversity within the military. That led on to all sorts of things that we can talk about. What I realized really early on was that I had a position of authority. I'd got a budget. I'd got connections. I understood how to make defense work. I was in charge of huge swaths of HR policy. I really didn't know what needed to be done to improve the lived experience for diverse groups. And there I had in front of me a very capable lady who knew what needed to be done, but didn't have access to those money and networks I had. So together we created the team, got people involved, and then we went out to do good things to increase the sort of diversity and inclusivity in defense. So it was probably four or five years ago. And since then I have become very passionate about the role of male allies in improving gender diversity and the role of leaders in improving gender diversity and diversity in the round. So yeah. a very long answer to no, no. Uh, to your question, but having listened to a number of your podcasts before, Chris, I figured I'd get as much in as I could up front. And, and <laughs> very wise, Jim, very wise. We can't shut Chris up half the time. So. No, certainly. So do you know what? I, w- I just wanted to touch on something that you just mentioned there. So did you see yourself when you were talking to this lady almost as it's incumbent on me because of the position that I have to be almost that champion, that spokesperson, because I have that voice within the organization organization. I don't know if I'd put it that way around. I don't think it was a incumbent on me to do that. I think what I realized was that I could do this and that I fundamentally believed in allowing everybody to bring their whole self to work for, you know, I touched a little bit on it when I was giving my introduction. But what I realized was that I was in a position where I could do this and I was in a position where I had the ability to make a difference. So it was kind of my part in the plan to deliver change was not to come up with what needed to be changed. And and we can talk about that and and the tendency for leaders to solutionize. But my part in the plan was it was almost like I was at the front of the queue with all of these people behind me who wanted to make change. But I was the only person who had the key to the door. So I could open mm. the door and hold it open and they yeah. could all go in and do the things that needed to be done. And without me there, it was much more difficult. But without them there, I wouldn't have been able to achieve it. So it was very much a partnership. And Jim, as an outsider looking in, because I'm non-military, not I'm not experienced in that sector at all, and I know it is a, a different beast in some ways, in a lot of ways, to organisations I will have worked with. So in that setting where you're talking about your sort of moment where you realise that you had 
the opportunity to, to make a difference in that sense. Where do you start in that position? Because again, as an outsider looking in, I don't necessarily think of from the military or the MOD or that sort of whole area as being someone that I would hold up as being a bastion of diversity, right? So you absolutely have a steep hill to climb. So from your perspective, four or five years ago, where did you think, okay, where can I make the biggest difference and how would I do that? And from that, the lessons that you've learned that now having moved on and, and, and working in the private sector now, what is it that you think you can bring to that in terms of the lessons that you've learned from working in that environment and making a real difference while you were there? Yeah, sure. And I, I think the first piece, now going to be a little bit challenging, back to you if that's all right, was defence and, and the military are doing a huge amount on diversity and on improving equality and equity and, and are very good at what they're doing and huge commitment from the most senior people in defence. And I've seen real change. And I think one of the strengths that I have is that people see my CV or look at me and see a middle-aged white senior military leader and they're straight down the bias chain. You know, they've automatically got a whole heap of biases about who I am and what I'm like. And that's a massive strength because when I go in and talk about diversity, gender and how to create a better lived experience and how to improve the outputs of your company, I look like one sort of person I get listened to and then I tell a very different story. But I think that that is almost the sort of wrapper. People listen to me because I'm this biased senior. They have this bias about what a senior military officer is like. And then when I start talking to them about the sorts of things they can do and how easy some of this in a leadership sense really is, then I think it can have real impact. So I think that's a strength in how we do things. In terms of what we did and how we moved it forward, then I think, you know, I, I probably probably learned three really key lessons early on with the work that I did. The one was I very quickly learned to listen. And listening is a leadership skill. <clears throat> we talk about it all the time. But how many of us listen to answer or how many of us listen to solutionize? And as a senior leader, I think there's a tendency for us to do that. Well, what I found with diversity was I had to listen because I'd got no lived experience. So I had to ask questions and then listen to understand, not listen to answer. And in doing that, people started to tell you what their lived experience was like. And I had to listen to that was really powerful because I could then start to help them to see how we could make things better. Again, it's not about me as a senior person. Going, right, What we need to do is change this policy. What we need to do is it's more of a okay, how do we collectively, what do we need to do to make this work? So the listening was really important. I think the other of my three big things was, and this is really uncomfortable, you don't get to be a senior officer in the military by admitting you get things wrong. And what I've found very early on when I was doing work in the diversity space was I would make mistakes because I haven't got that lived experience. And you know what? It's all right. And, and what I realized was people, it was all right not to know, but it wasn't all right not to care. And what I think we as senior leaders can do is we can create the space where I want this to be better. I don't know what needs to be done and I might make mistakes. So tell me politely, you know, don't embarrass me, but tell me. So getting used to getting things wrong was really important. I've been very fortunate in my career. I've briefed some very senior people from across the world, but nothing frightens me like standing up in front of a group of women to talk about gender diversity. That is proper frightening because <laughs> there I am talking about a subject I've got no experience of, and I know I'm being judged and I know people are looking at me going, why is he doing this? What's in it for him to start with? And that vulnerability, that putting myself out there is really uncomfortable. And I know it's not something that we like to do, not as senior leaders. And we talk about being authentic and being vulnerable, but it's 
really bloody uncomfortable. So I think the three things that I learned were one, it's all right to be wrong. Two, ask people and listen. And three is, it's going to be uncomfortable, but get over it because that's how things get better. And those are three hugely powerful lessons to take and are applicable in any setting, I think, as well. And, and I'm glad you challenged me, Jim, because it's hard to get your head around what is happening in this space and different types of organisations and and, you know, and the formality and, and structure that goes with the military as well. It's great to hear the progress that's being made. I guess those sort of lessons that you're setting out are, as you say, very much leadership lessons. I know that you were obviously accountable for policy at the same time. So from my perspective, obviously our majority of people we work with are chief people officers, group HRDs, and it's that balance of policy, i.e. setting out the rules and what's expected, as well as the leadership piece that need to go hand in hand. And how do you see that sort of balance working? I'm a firm believer in this is a leadership issue. I think that HR has a really key role to play, but I think there's a real danger it becomes a HR issue. Yeah. It's not a HR issue. I think the organisations, and I'll, I'll sort of exaggerate for effect, so hopefully people will see it as that. But I think organisations that say, OK, we're really serious about this. We've written our diversity and inclusivity charter. We've all got it on our footers of our emails. And we've created a champion for d and in the HR function. They're going to do after all this and we can get back to doing what we did before. And there's a real danger. It becomes an externalised HR function. It's not. Creating the space for everybody to be the best they can be is not a HR function. It's a leadership function. Now, HR clearly have to make sure that the policies, which in many organisations have been written over time, are being modified and adapted to be inclusive and be equitable. You know, a number of times I've had conversations where people say, well, we apply these policies fairly to everybody. And it reminds me of that cartoon. And I think it's a really nice way of describing equity with a fence and you've got a guy a child and a person in a, in a wheelchair and the guy can see over the fence and the child's jumping up to look over and the, and the, the person in the wheelchair can't see over the fence at all. And equality is giving everybody the same box and they can all stand on the box. Whereas equity is you leave the guy as he is, provide a ladder for the child and create a platform for the person in the wheelchair. And I think there's such a powerful visual difference. So I think HR's role is very much to look at the policies and say, are they equitable? Do they apply in the way that we want them to apply to everybody? So everybody has the same opportunity. And I think HR can play a really important role in another area, which I think is key, which is holding to account. And we can talk about that in terms of performance management and in terms of objective setting. But the rest of it is a leadership function. And I talk about, and, and I have people use this phrase a lot, but the say-do gap. Very easy to say we're X, but you're only X if you do it. And that's where I think the listen comes in. As a senior leader, you are the stories people tell about you. As much as me, Jim McLeod, would love to have been this all-inclusive leader who cared about everybody, and you know that's who I want to be. When I listen to some of the stories that are told about me, I know I'm not quite like that. I you know I get it wrong, and I think it's really important that you know as a senior leader, we do things to close that gap. We do things that show that we care. So as much as HR are a key enabler in delivering this, they can't do this unless it's a leadership function at every level within the organisation. And does that not speak to, it's a culture question really more than anything else, that if you have the right culture in place where leaders feel empowered to actually take more control, then it's going to have that kind of positive effect. So I guess that's my question is, how important is culture within a business to enable leaders to feel like they can drive effective inclusivity? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And we could go down a whole rabbit hole about what isn't, isn't culture and I've got sort of specific views on we use culture as a little bit of an excuse. I believe 
a really simplistic thing that people move towards benefit and they move away from pain and organizations run in that way. If I, as a senior leader in my last role, said, I really care about gendered language, it matters. And I stand up in front of my peers and say, I really care about gendered language. And then I chair a meeting and people start talking about manpower and manning and I don't do anything about it. Then who is? I'm basically saying that this is acceptable behavior. The culture of our organization allows this to happen. Whereas if I step in and say, actually, I think you meant workforce or I think you meant people or I think you meant then I might get a few raised eyebrows from people around the room going you know we know we, we, we why do we always go over this but what I'm doing is I'm saying that the behaviors that are acceptable are as we said non-gendered language and as a senior person I have a degree of authority over people direct and indirect so we tend to do what the boss wants us to do and and if I, as a boss, are responsible for hundreds of people, if I was doing this, then my staff would start to do this. If I didn't do it, my staff wouldn't do it. So perhaps that's the answer to the culture, but we create that in how we act and what we do. And I sort of tease people, no amount of futters that say I'm an equal opportunity mm. employee and that I work on weekends so you don't have to actually changes the fact that I expect you to have read all my emails by nine o'clock on a Monday morning. So how we act and what we do as leaders sets that culture. And that's leaders throughout the whole organization that's not just C-suite, but if it, st it starts at C-suite, because if the C-suite doesn't hold the executive to account, the executive don't hold their people to account, it's not going to work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jim. And, and to me, that's your question, Chris. Culture is essentially the behaviours of the mm -hmm. organisation and leadership behaviour sets the tone. And to Jim's point, therefore, if you see your leaders behaving in a certain way, tolerating some things, not tolerating others and stepping up and demonstrating inclusivity, then that's the most effective way to ensure that that's how you start behaving as well and other leaders behave in their teams. When I used to talk about this in the military, I used to talk about fire extinguishers. And on ships, fire fighting is really important. And if you've got fire on a ship, you've got nowhere to go. You've got to put it out. So making sure that all the appliances are ready to go is a key part of the job. And as an officer, I'd wander around and look at the fire extinguishers to check they were charged. And if they weren't charged, then I would make sure something was done about it. Now, I could have ignored it and then condoned it. And of course, those standards would start to slip throughout the whole of the ship. Or I could go and do that myself. I could pick the extinguisher up and go and charge it and it would fix the problem. Or I could find out who was responsible for that section of the ship and find out why they hadn't charged the fire extinguisher. But I wouldn't tell them which fire extinguisher they'd not done because that's their job. But I would make sure it was clear to them that their fire extinguishers were not acceptable. And they would then get the message. And it's a kind of a very trivial example, but it very much sets the tone, sets the standards that you expect. And then there's diversity space, inclusivity space. I think the standards that leaders set are absolutely paramount and trickling through that organisation. And that is not about saying, that is very much about doing. And I know you've been talking to a number of different organisations sharing this knowledge, Jim, and the perspective, which I'm sure they're finding incredibly helpful. How is it resonating? Because you're talking to businesses of different sizes, different sectors. To me, there are huge parallels with what you're describing. Is that how it's landing? Are they seeing that resonate? It does. I find that the storytelling is really powerful. And, you know, I touched on it before, you know, I, it's wrong, but I can get an audience because of who I am and my CV. People are interested in that. It's great. But when I start talking and I tell a story about one of the things that I've recognized is 99% of people don't come to work to make life difficult for the people they work with. They really don't. And I, I had a lady who worked for me and she's very good. She went off to work somewhere else in defense. And I was catching up with her on the phone one day and she was telling me she was really unhappy and she was thinking about leaving. And I was really surprised. She was very, very capable 
individual had got a good career ahead of her. And I asked a little bit, and she'd gone to this organisation, and she was one of the only women in it, and it was the first time she'd been near her family, she'd been at sea a lot, and she was going home and doing the school pickup, and she was subject to those sort of microaggressions of comments, a little bit of banter, I see you knocking off early or half day, and a bit of banter, and what harm could that do? Anyway, it got to the point where there was a family afternoon, and she didn't go. First time she could have gone, and she didn't go, and and, and she'd realised that was time to, to leave. So I was talking to her, and I, I said, look, do you mind? She told me who her boss was. And I, I knew him. I was a friend. I said, do you mind if I have a chat? And she said, yeah, but don't drop me in it, Admiral. I said, no, no, I won't. I promise. So I spoke to this guy. He was absolutely devastated that he'd had this impact on this individual. He saw her the way I did as a very capable individual with a huge amount of potential and long career ahead of her. I had no idea what was happening in his organization with creating this. He fixed it the next day. Fixing. And I tell that story because it's that power of if we haven't experienced it, we don't see it. And as white male leaders, we've often been advantaged with the way that organizations run and therefore we don't see these micro -dations. We don't see these glass ceilings. So what I find when I'm talking to groups of leaders is I start to tell these stories and it you can start to see the light go on. And what I found as well is everybody gets the analytical argument about diversity. Yeah. The evidence is overwhelming that companies, uh, P&L's better. You know, in my business before, the UN did a study and peace accords and treaties that had been set up with women around the table lasted longer than those that had been set up by only men. This isn't just about profit. This is about decision making in complex environments. So everybody gets the analytical bit. But what I found is if you can connect with that emotional piece, you can get the head and the heart aligned on what needs to change, what the problems are, then it starts to have have impact. I remember there was one the group of people I was talking to and one of the guys was challenging me, which is good. And he said, well, there's no senior women in my organization. They just don't want to do it. I said, oh, really? Why is that? He said, I don't know. I said, have you ever thought of asking them? And he went, no, that's a really good idea, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, isn't it? And he emailed me what, a few weeks later. He said, I asked them. It's brilliant. I've learned loads of stuff. And it's that just haven't really put ourselves into anybody else's situation. And we haven't asked the questions and listened to the answers. And I think to go full circle on your question, telling those stories from my perspective, I'm not an expert on DE and I. There are lots of people who are, but people will listen because I've been a senior leader and I've learned this the hard way. And I can tell horror stories where I've got it wrong. But exactly that, Jim, I guess, you know, back to your three main lessons, I guess, at the beginning, as you say, the stories really help, right? They really bring it to life in terms of scenarios we've all been in or can see the, the applicability to multiple different environments. But that point you're making around firstly, ask the questions. So be inquisitive about it and find out how it feels if you haven't got that lived experience to your point, Jim, you know, if you haven't been there and been in that specific scenario because you're white male, whatever, you know, senior leader, then asking the questions. Questions, but secondly, then really listening to the answers and asking those questions with the intent of doing something differently, I guess, is the point as well. So you are then actively listening to what you're hearing with a view to making a difference. And it is that avoiding the desire to solutionize. And it's so hard for me. I'm an engineer by background. I moved into HR. I want to fix stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and and people start to give me problems, and I'm straight away to right. What we need to do is, and of course, I don't understand the full side of it. And I remember. We were dealing with a senior person in the military. I ended up kind of heading up, titularly heading up this team to drive forward improved diversity in the senior ranks of the military. And the team won a number of awards. And we took a systemic view. We looked at policies, processes, promotion, 
bias reporting, lived experience. And we sort of looked at the whole thing and, and did a load of, load of changes to things. Lived experience, which we're generally talking about today, being probably the key area that makes the most difference. But we ended up sort of briefing some of the work that we've been doing or the team ended up briefing the work they've been doing. And we were talking to a very senior person and the team had come up. These are the sorts of things that we need to do. And this senior person, who's absolutely hard in the right place, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, why don't we do this? And came up with this idea. And a very brave, and very, because this was a senior in the job, very brave lady in the room said to him, sir, you've got 250 years of lived experience of being a woman in the military that's come up with these recommendations. Why do you think a 50-year-old white man's going to know the right answer? And I just thought beautiful and the, the recipient of that comment just smiled and went yeah you're right and, and received it exactly as it was meant but I thought brilliant and, and the lessons I took away from it were one I felt really pleased that we'd create a space where that conversation could happen because it would have been very easy for everybody just to go aye aye sir turn right smartly to the right and go on and do the wrong thing and of course what would that have done to the morale of the people in the room but it also showed me that when challenged people are prepared to listen and are prepared to allow that heart and, and head to align rather than just running off with the head but again I tell that story because one it makes me smile and two I think it's got a really strong learning point to it. Jim we are I can't believe that's 30 minutes. <laughs> I just you are right. He's a good storyteller. I've just I've been sitting here just listening thinking I want some more. We're going to need to get you on again so you can talk to some more of your experiences because a lot of really fascinating stuff in there on behalf of obviously myself and Kathy. It's been great to have you on the podcast. So thank you very much. No, my pleasure. I, I, I'm hugely passionate about this. I believe it's something that senior leaders can make a massive difference. It's a very complex issue. I don't underestimate that. But leadership, I think, is at the heart of making sustainable change yeah. and creating a space where people want to be and want to work. And, and what's not to like as a leader about creating that space? Absolutely, Jim. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your input today. Loving hearing more about what you've done and also the parallels for anyone listening. Yeah. They can take away as lessons learned. Certainly. Jim, just for uh, our listeners, do you want to just tell them where they can find you if they wanted to reach out for a chat? Yeah, certainly. I'm on LinkedIn. Jim McLeod, look me up on LinkedIn. And if they get really stuck, then I'm sure, Chris, you wouldn't mind sending them to my way. But delighted to talk on this subject. I am passionate about it and I do think that we can make a real difference. Great job, everyone. Kathy, thank you very much for Pleasure. being my co-host today. You Absolutely. can, of course, get this podcast wherever you get your podcast. I won't do the usual spiel, but check out our website, lacepartners.co.uk. If you have a look on the insights section, you can see all of our podcasts. We do research. We've got webinars that we've done, which you can see on-demand versions of. All sorts of great stuff. But thank you very much, Jim. Thank you very much to Kathy. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Effective Podcast. Bye-bye.